Great. Hope you're having a wonderful day. We are on episode three, and I am going to try to read chapter six, seven, and eight. Remember that in chapter five, uh, Piscine Molitar Patel is pretty well bullied and pretty well cannot handle it. So he creates his way to advocate and communicate and lets people know his name to keep it simple. Pi. All right. Um, chapter six is in italics. It's only 10 lines long. And remember the settings have been Toronto, Canada, Pondicherry, India, and a little bit of Mexico. So moving into seven, remember we've already heard that this young man is studying um, both zoology and theology and theology is the study of religions so you will in this first part hear and listen to um, Pi uh, studying the three main world religions so chapter seven will have to do with that and chapter eight is all about important animals, um, the family, and a strong lesson learned. Chapter six. He's an excellent cook. His overheated house is always smelling of something delicious. His spice rack looks like an apothecary's shop. When he opens his refrigerator or his cupboards, there are many, many brand names I don't even recognize. In fact, I don't even don't know what language they're in. We're in India. But he handles Western dishes equally well. He makes me the most zesty yet subtle macaroni and cheese I've ever had. And his vegetarian tacos would be the envy of all of Mexico. I noticed something else. His cupboards are jam-packed, full, behind every door, on every shelf stand mountains of neatly stacked cans and packages, a reserve of food to last the siege of Leningrad. Chapter seven. It was my luck to have a good teacher, a few good teachers in my youth, men and women who came into my dark head and lit a match. One of these was Mr. Satish Kumar, my biology teacher a petite seminar and an active communist who was always hoping Tamil Nadu would stop electing movie stars and go the way of Kerala. He had a most peculiar appearance. The top of his head was bald and pointy, yet he had the most impressive jowls I've ever seen, and his narrow shoulders gave way to a massive stomach. That looked like the base of a mountain except the mountain stood in thin air for it stopped abruptly and disappeared horizontally into his pants. It's a mystery to me how his stick skinny legs supported the weight above him, but they did, though they moved in surprising ways at times as if his knees would bend in any direction. His construction was geometric. He looked like two triangles, small one and a larger one balanced on two parallel lines, but organic, quite warty actually, with sprigs of black hair sticking out of his ears and friendly. His smile seemed to make up the whole base of his triangular head. 
Mr. Kumar was the first avowed atheist I'd ever met. I discovered this not in the classroom, but at the zoo. He was a regular visitor who read the labels and descriptive notices in their entirety and improved of every animal he saw, which to him was a triumph of logic and mechanics and nature as a whole was exceptionally a great illustration of science. To his ears, when the animals were getting wild just before sundown or sun up, we could hear the bleating, the grunting, the hissing, the snorting, the roaring, the growling, the howling, the chirping, and the screeching were as thick noises as listening to accents of foreigners. When Mr. Kumar visited the zoo, it was to take the pulse of the universe and his stethoscopic mind always confirmed to him that everything was in order, that everything was order. He left the zoo feeling scientifically refreshed. The first time I saw his triangular form teetering and tottering about the zoo, I was shy to approach him. As much as I liked him as a teacher, he was a figure of authority, and I as a subject, well, I was a little afraid of him. I observed him at a distance. He had just come to the rhinoceros pit. The two Indian rhinoceros were great attractions at the zoo because of the goats. Rhinos are social animals, and when we got peak, a young wild male rhino, he was showing signs of suffering from isolation, and he was eating less and less. As a stopgap measure while he searched for a female, father thought of seeing if peak couldn't be accustomed to living with goats. If it worked, it would save a valuable animal. If it didn't, it would only cost a few goats. It worked marvelously. Peak and the herd of goats became inseparable, even when Summit arrived. Now, when the rhinos bathed, the goats would stood around the muddy pool. When the goats ate in the corner, Peak and Summit, the rhinos, stood next to them like guards. The living arrangements were very popular with the public at the zoo. Mr. Kumar looked up and saw me. He smiled, one hand holding onto the railing, the other waving, signaling me, come over. Hello, Pie, he said. Hello, sir. It's good of you to come to the zoo. I come here all the time. One, one might say, it's my temple. Well, this is interesting. He was indicating the pit. If we had politicians like these goats and rhinos, we'd have fewer problems in our country. Unfortunately, we have a prime minister who was the armor plating of a rhinoceros without any of its good sense. I didn't know much about politics. Father and mother complained regularly about Mrs. Gandhi, but it meant little to me. She lived far away in the north, not at the zoo, not in Pondicherry, and I was a kid. But I felt I had to say something. Religion will save us, I said, since when I could remember religion had been very close to my heart. Religion, Mr. Kumar grinned broadly. I don't believe in religion. Religion is darkness. Darkness? I was puzzled, I thought. Darkness is the last thing that religion is. Religion is light. Was he testing me? Was he saying religion is darkness? The way he sometimes said in a class, things like, mammals lay eggs, to see if anyone would correct him. Only platypuses, sir. Well, there are no grounds for going beyond a scientific explanation of reality and no sound reason for believing anything but our sense of experience. A clear intellect, close attention to detail, and a little scientific knowledge will expose, expose religion as 
superstitious bosh. God does not exist, said Mr. Kumar. Did he say that? Or am I remembering the lines of a later atheist? At any rate, it was something of a sort. I had never heard such words. Why tolerate darkness? Everything is here and clear, if only we look carefully. He was pointing at Peak the rhino. Now, though, I had great admiration for Peak. I had never thought of a rhinoceros as a light bulb. He spoke again. Some people say God died during the partition in 1947. Well, he may have died in 1971 during that war, or he may have died yesterday here in Pondicherry in an orphanage. Well, that's what people say, Pi. When I was your age, I lived in a bed. I was racked with polio. I asked myself every day, where is God? Where is God? As I suffered, God never came. It wasn't God who saved me. It was medicine. Reason is my prophet, and it tells me that as watch stops, so we die. It's the end. If the watch doesn't work properly, it must be fixed here and now by us. One day we will take hold of the means of production, and there will be justice on earth. This was just all a bit too much for me. The tone was right, loving and brave, but the details seemed bleak. I said nothing. It wasn't for fear of angering Mr. Kumar. I was more afraid that in a few words thrown out, he might destroy something that I loved. What if his words had the effect of polio on me? What a terrible disease that must be, that must be if it could kill God in a man. He walked off, pitching and rolling in the wild sea that was the steady ground. Hey, uh, don't forget to study for that test on Tuesday. Study hard, 3.14. Yes, Mr. Kumar. Well, he became my favorite teacher at Petit Seminar and the reason I studied zoology at the University of Toronto. I felt a kinship with him. It was my first clue that atheists are my brothers and sisters of a different faith. And every word they speak speaks of faith. Like me, they go as far as the legs of reason will carry them. And then they leap. Well, I will be honest about it. It is not atheists who get stuck in my craw, but agnostics. Doubt is useful for a while. We must all pass through the Garden of Gethsemane. If Christ played with doubt, so must we. If Christ spent an anguished night in prayer, if he burst out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Then surely we are also permitted to doubt. But we must move on. To choose doubt as a philosophy of life forever is akin to choosing immobility as a means of transportation. Chapter 8. We commonly say in the trade that the most dangerous animal in a zoo is man. In a general way, we mean how our species' excessive predatorialness has made the entire planet our prey. More specifically, we have a mind, or in the mind, the people who feed fish hooks to the otters, razors to the bears, apples with small nails in them to the elephants, and hardware variations on the theme, including ballpoint pens, paper clips, safety pins, rubber bands, combs, coffee spoons, Horseshoes, pieces of broken glass, rings, brooches, and other jewelry. And we're not talking just cheap plastic bangles. These are gold wedding bands, too. Some people feed animals drinking straws, plastic cutlery, cutlery, ping pong balls, tennis balls, and so on. 
the obituary of zoo animals that have died from being fed foreign bodies would include gorillas, bison, stork, rheas, ostriches, seals, sea lions, big cats, bears, camels, elephants, monkeys, and most every variety of deer, ruminant, and songbird. Among zookeepers, Goliath's death is famous. He was a bull elephant seal, a great big venerable beast of two tons, star of his European zoo, loved by all visitors. He died of internal bleeding after someone fed him a broken beer bottle. The cruelty is often more active and direct. The literature contains reports of the many torments inflicted upon zoo animals. A shoebill dying of shock after having its beak smashed with a hammer. A moose, stag, losing its beard along with a strip of flesh the size of an index finger to a visitor's knife. This same moose was poisoned six months later. A monkey's arm broken after reaching out for preferred nuts. A deer's antler attack with a hacksaw, a zebra stab with a sword, and other assaults on other animals. With walking sticks, umbrellas, hairpins, kneading, knitting needles, scissors, and whatnot, often with an aim to taking an eye out or to injuring other parts. Animals are also poisoned, and there are indecencies even more bizarre. And that had to do with monkeys, ponies, birds. There was even a religious freak who cut off a snake's head and a deranged man who took to urinating in an elk's mouth. Well, at Pondicherry, we are relatively fortunate. We are spared the sadists who plied European and American zoos. Nonetheless, our golden agouti vanished, stolen by someone who ate it, father suspected. Various birds, peasants, peacocks, Macaws lost feathers to people greedy for their beauty. We caught a man with a knife climbing into the pen for a mouse deer. He said he was going to punish evil Ravana. Another man was nabbed in the process of stealing a cobra. He was a snake charmer whose snake had died. Both were saved, the cobra from a life of servitude and bad music, and a man from a possible death bite. We had to deal on occasion with stone throwers who found the animals too placid and wanted a reaction. And we had the lady whose sari was caught by a lion. She spun like a yo-yo, choosing mortal embarrassment over mortal end. The thing was, it wasn't even an accident. She had leaned over, thrust her hand in the cage, and waved the end of her sari in the lion's face. With what intent, we never figured out. She was not injured. There were many fascinated men who came to her assistance. Her flustered explanation to father was, who ever heard of a lion eating a cotton sari? I thought, Lions were carnivores. Our most troublemakers were the visitors who gave food to the animals. Despite our vigilance, Dr. Atal, the zoo veterinarian, could tell by the number of animals with digestive disturbances, which had been the busy days at the zoo. He called tidbitsitis, the case of entries, or sorry, enteritis or gastritis due to too many carbohydrates, especially sugar. Sometimes we wish people had stuck to their own sweets. People have a notion that animals can eat anything without the least consequence to their health. Not so. One of our sloth bears became seriously ill with a hemorrhaging enteritis after being given fish that had gone putrid by a man who was convinced he was doing a good deed. Just beyond the ticket booth, Father had had painted on a wall in the bright red letters the question, 
Do you know which is the most dangerous animal in the zoo? An arrow pointed to a small curtain. There were so many eager, curious hands that pulled at the curtain that we had to replace it regularly. And what was behind the curtain? A mirror. But I learned at my expense that Father believed there was another animal even more dangerous than us, and one that was extremely common, too, found on every continent in every habitat, the redoubtable species Animalius anthropomorphicus, the animal as seen through human eyes. We've all met one, perhaps even owned one. It's an animal that's cute and friendly and loving and devoted and merry, understanding. Well, these animals lie in ambush in every toy store and children's zoo. Countless stories are told of them. They are the pendants of those vicious, bloodthirsty, depraved animals that inflame the ire of maniacs. I have just mentioned who vent their spite on them with walking sticks, these people, and umbrellas. In both cases, we look at an animal and see a mirror. The obsession with putting ourselves at the center of everything is the bane not only of theologians, but also zoologists. Well, I learned the lesson that an animal is an animal essentially and practically removed from us twice. Once with my father and once with Richard Parker. Okay, it was Sunday morning. I was quietly playing on my own. Father called out, children, come here. Something was wrong. His tone of, tone of voice was set off, setting off a small alarm bell in my head. I quickly reviewed my conscience. It was clear. Ravi must be in trouble again. I wondered what he had done this time. I walked into the living room. Mother was there. That was unusual. The disciplining of children in our family, like the tending of animals, was generally left to father. Ravi walked in last, guilt written all over his criminal face. Ravi, Piscine, I have a very important lesson for you today. Oh, really? Is this necessary? interrupted mother. Her face was flushed. I swallowed. If mother normally so unruffled, so calm, was worried, even upset, it meant we were in serious trouble. I exchanged glances with Ravi. Yes, it is, said father annoyed. It may very well save their lives. Save our lives? It was no longer a small alarm bell that was ringing in my head. They were big bells now, like the ones we heard from Sacred Heart of Jesus Christ, not far from the zoo. But pissing, he's only eight, mother insisted. He's the one who worries me the most. I'm innocent, I burst out. It's Ravi's fault, whatever it is. He did it. What, said Ravi? I haven't done anything wrong. He gave me the evil eye. Shush, said father, raising his hands. He was looking at mother. Gita, you've seen Pissin. He's at the age when boys run around and poke their noses everywhere. Me, a run around and everywhere nose poker? Not so, not so. Defend me, mother, defend me, I implore in my heart. But she only sighed and nodded, a signal that the terrible business could proceed. Come with me, father said. Well, we set off like prisoners off to our execution. We left the house, went through the gate, entered the zoo. It was early and the zoo hadn't opened yet in the public. Animal keepers and groundskeepers were going about their work. I noticed Sitaram, who oversaw the orangutans, my favorite keeper. He paused to watch us go by. We passed birds, bears, apes, monkeys, ungulates, the terrarium, the rhinos, the elephants, and the giraffes. We came to the big cats, our tigers, lions, leopards, 
Babu, their keeper, was waiting for us. We went around down the path, and he unlocked the door to the cat house, which was at the center of a moated island. We entered. It was a vast and dim cement cavern, circular in shape, warm and humid and smelling of cat urine. All around were big, big cages divided up by thick green iron bars. A yellowish light filtered down from the skylights. Through the cage exits, we could see the vegetation of the surrounding island, flooded with sunlight. The cages were empty, save one. Mahisha, our Bengal tiger patriarch, a lanking, hulking beast of 550 pounds had been detained. As soon as we stepped in, he loped up to the bars of his cage and set off a full-throated snarl, ears flat against his skull and round eyes fixed on Babu. The sound was so loud and fierce, it seemed to shake the whole cat house. My knees started quaking. I got close to mother. She was trembling too. Even father seemed to pause and steady himself. Only Babu, the keeper, was indifferent to the outburst, to the searing stare that bore into him like a drill. He had had a tested trust in those iron bars. Mahisha started pacing to and fro against the limits of the cage. Father turned to us. What animal is this? He bellowed above Mahisha's snarling. It's a tiger, Ravi and I answered in unison, obediently pointing out the blindingly obvious. Are tigers dangerous? Yes, Father. Tigers are dangerous. Tigers are very dangerous, Father shouted. I want you to understand that you are never, under any circumstances, to touch a tiger, to pet a tiger, to put your hands through the bars of a cage, even to get close to a cage. No tigers. Is that clear? Ravi. Ravi nodded vigorously. Hissin. I nodded even more vigorously. He kept his eyes on me. I nodded so hard I'm surprised my neck didn't snap off and my head fall to the floor. I would like to say in my own defense that though I may have anthropomorphized the animals, Till they spoke fluent English, the pheasants complaining in uppity British accents of their tea being cold and baboons planning their bank robbery getaway in the flat, menacing tones of American gangster, the fancy was always conscious. I quite deliberately dressed wild animals in tame costumes in my imagination, but I never deluded myself as to the real nature of my playmates. My poking nose had more sense than that. I don't know where father got the idea that his youngest son was itching to step into a cage with a ferocious carnivore. But wherever the strange worry came from, and father was a worrier, he was clearly determined to rid himself of that the very morning. I'm going to show you how dangerous tigers are, he continued. I want you to remember this lesson for the rest of your lives. He turned to Babu and nodded. Babu left. Maisha's eyes followed him and did not move from the door. He, he disappeared through. He returned a few seconds later carrying a goat, a goat with its legs ties, tied. Mother gripped me from behind. Maisha's snarl turned into a growl deep in, in the throat. Babu unlocked, opened, entered, closed, and locked a cage next to the tiger's cage. Bars and trap doors separated the two immediately. Maisha was up against the dividing bars, pawing them ferociously. To his growling and growling, he now added explosive, arrested woofs. Babu placed the goat on the floor. Its flanks were heaving violently. 
Its tongue hung from its mouth, and its eyes were spinning orbs. He untied its legs, the goat's legs. The goat got to its feet. Babu exited the cage in the same careful way he had entered it. The cage had two floors, one level with us, the other at the back, higher by about three feet, that led outside to the island. The goat scrambled to his second level. Maisha, now unconcerned with Babu, paralleled the move in his cage in a fluid, effortless motion. He crouched, he laid still, his slowly moving tail the only sign of tension. Babu stepped up to the trap door between the cages and started pulling it open. In anticipation of satisfaction, Maisha fell silent. I heard two things at that moment. Father saying, never forget this lesson, as he looked on grimly, and then the bleeding of the goat. It must have been bleeding all along, only we could not hear it before. I could feel mother's hand press against my pounding heart. The trapdoor resisted with sharp cries. Maisha was beside himself. He looked as if he were about to burst through the bars. He seemed to hesitate between staying where he was, at the place where his prey was closest, but most certainly out of reach, and moving to the ground level, further away. But when the trap door was located and opened, he raised himself and started snarling again. The goat started to jump. It jumped to amazing heights. I had no idea a goat could jump that high. But the back of the cage was a high and smooth cement wall. With a sudden ease, the trap door did slide all the way open. Silence fell again, except for bleating, and the click, click of the goat's hooves against the floor. A streak of black and orange flowed from one cage to the next. Normally, the big cats were not given food one day a week to stimulate conditions in the wild. But we found out later that Father had ordered Maisha not to be fed for a whole three days. I don't know if I saw blood before turning into Mother's arm or if I or if I daubed it on later in my memory with a big brush, but I did hear it. It was enough to scare the living vegetarian daylights out of me. Mother bundled us out. We were in hysterics. She was incensed. How could you, Santosh? They're children. They'll be scared for the rest of their lives. Her voice was hot and tremulous. I could see she had tears in her eyes. I felt better. Gita, my bird, it's for their sake. What if Pissin had stuck his hand through the bars of the cage one day to touch the pretty orange fur. Better a goat than him, no? His voice was soft, nearly a whisper. He looked contrite. He never called her my bird in front of us. We were huddled around mother. He joined us, but the lesson was not over, though it was a gentler lesson after that. Father then led us to the lions and the leopards. Once there was a madman in Australia, was a black belt in karate. He wanted to prove himself against the lions. Well, he lost badly. The keepers found only half his body in the morning. Yes, father. The Himalayan bears and the sloth bears. One strike of those claws from that cuddly creature and your innards will be scooped out and splattered all over the ground. Yes, father. The hippos. With those soft, flabby mouths of theirs, they'll crush your body to a bloody pulp. On land, they can outrun you. Yes, father. The hyenas, the strongest jaws in nature. Don't think they're cowardly or that they only eat carrion. They're not. They don't. They'll start eating you while you're still alive. Yes, father. The orangutans. 
as strong as ten men. They'll break your bones as if they were twigs. I know some of them were once pets, and you played with them when they were small. But now they're grown up, and they're wild, and they're unpredictable. Yes, Father. The ostrich looks flustered. Looks silly, doesn't it, that ostrich? Well, listen up. It's one of the most dangerous animals in the zoo. Just one kick, and your back is broken, or your torso is crushed. Yes, Father, the spotted deer. So pretty, aren't they? Well, if the male feels he has to, he'll charge you, and those short little antlers will pierce you like daggers. Yes, Father. The Arabian camel. One slobbering bite, and you've lost a chunk of flesh. Yes, Father. The black swans. With their beaks, they'll crack your skull. With their wings, they could break your arms. Yes, Father. The small birds. They'll cut through your fingers and their beaks as if they were butter. Yes, Father. The elephants, the most dangerous animal of all. More keepers and visitors are killed by elephants than any other animal in the zoo. A young elephant will most likely dismember you and trample your body parts flat. That's what happened to one poor lost soul in European zoo who got into the elephant's house through a window. An older, more patient animal will squeeze you against a wall or sit on you simply. Sounds funny, but think about it. Yes, Father. Well, there are animals we haven't stopped by. Don't think they're harmless. Life will defend itself no matter how small it is. Every animal is ferocious and dangerous. It may not kill you, but it will certainly injure you. It will scratch you and bite you, and you can look forward to a swollen, pus-filled infection, a high fever, and a 10-day stay in the hospital. Yes, Father. Then we came to the guinea pigs, the only other animals beside Maisha to have starved by Father's orders. Having been denied their previous evening's meal, Father unlocked the cage of the guinea pigs. He brought out a bag of feed from his pocket and he emptied it on the floor. You see these guinea pigs? Yes, Father. The creatures were trembling with weakness as they frantically nibbled their kettles and kernels of corn. Well, he leaned down, scooped one up. They're not dangerous. The other guinea pigs scattered instantly. Father laughed. He handed me a squealing guinea pig. He meant to end on a light note. Well, the guinea pig rested in my arms tensely. It was a younger one. I went to the cage and carefully lowered it to the floor. It rushed to its mother's side. The only reason these guinea pigs weren't dangerous, didn't draw blood with their teeth and claws, was they were predictably, predictably domestic, domesticated. Otherwise, to grab a wild guinea pig with your bare hands would be like taking hold of a knife by a blade. The lesson was over. Ravi and I sulked and gave father the cold shoulder for a whole week. Mother ignored him too. When I went by the rhinoceros pit, I fancied the rhino's heads were hung low with sadness over the loss of one of their dear companion goats. But what can you do when you love your father? Life goes on, and you don't touch tigers. Except that now, for having accused Ravian of an unspecified crime he hadn't committed, I was as good as dead. In years subsequent, when he was in the mood to terrorize me, he would whisper to me. I accidentally cut off that last sentence. Last sentence of chapter 8. In years subsequent, when he was in the mood to terrorize me,
Ravi would whisper to me, just you wait till we're alone. You're the next goat. All right. Looking forward to chapter nine in episode four. To be continued, Life of Pi by Jan Martell.